concerns over poor quality, lack of regulation and misrepresentation of animal studies for drug development are raised in a new investigation on bmj.com. The investigation reveals concerns that researchers misinterpreted animal study results to gain funding and approval for the human phase of that trial. MVA85A, a vaccine developed by researchers at Oxford to boost the effectiveness of the BCG vaccine, is the focus of the investigation. It seems that while the clinical trial was in the late stages of preparation, a study in monkeys should have raised doubts about the effectiveness of the vaccine. Although the monkey study was too small to draw firm conclusions, the results sparked concerns in academic circles. Subsequently, the monkey study's results were not included in information submitted to regulators for approval and funding of human trials, which was several months later. What comes next is a press conference led by the BMJ's Editor-in-Chief, Fiona Godley, and a panel made up of scientists from around the world. Welcome to Loop Up. Enter an access code, then press hash. To cancel, press star. Um, well, welcome and thank you everyone for joining today. Uh, my name's Emma Dickinson, I'm from the BMJ Media Relations team. Um, I'll just go through what the call, how we're going to work the call. Um, it will be led by Dr. Fiona Godley, who's the Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. And she will be joined by Dr. Deborah Cohen, who's Associate Editor at the BMJ. Paul Garner at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Professor Malcolm McLeod at the University of Edinburgh. Professor Merrill Ritzkers Hottinger at Radboud University in the Netherlands, and Jonathan Kimmelman, Associate Professor at McGill University in Canada. Um, I will shortly hand over to Dr. Godley, who will begin with a brief background to the investigation, and then each member of the panel will speak for around five minutes. I'll then go to each journalist in turn if you want to ask questions. Um, and just to let you know that we are recording the discussion, um, and that will be posted onto bmj.com. Um, can I also remind everyone to please mute their line if you're not speaking so that there's no background noise um, and I'll hand over to Dr Godley. Thank you. Thanks very much Emma and thanks for joining. Um, I'm, I'm very proud to be publishing this story in the BMJ that Deborah Cohen has been doing investigation on and also very pleased that we've got such an excellent lineup of expert commentators um, helping I think, importantly, to set the story in context. So as you'll have seen from the press release, this is a, a story about the development of a new booster vaccine to try and improve the prevention of TB by the BCG vaccine. Um, and I think at heart it's a story about the way in which the animal studies that led on to human trials have been uh, selectively reported uh, when seeking funding and regulatory and ethics committee approval and also when seeking uh, parental approval for the infants involved in those trials to take part. I, I think um, one of the, uh, a couple of the key things that I would take away from the story, but others in, on the call will expand on various elements because it's a very rich story in terms of what it can tell us about the current state of animal research, is that... Um, a lot of questions remain unanswered. It's been very hard to get to the information, and Deborah Cohen will tell more about that. Um, but it's also, at times, we were, we were, we were um, 
uh, charged with, uh, in the process of publishing this story, that we might risk public confidence in vaccine development um, and public trust in vaccines and public trust in animal studies. I think it's important to say this is not an anti-vaccination story, not an anti-vivisection story. Um, but it, uh, and indeed, I think what, what I come away concluding is that it's not this kind of story that should um, make the public distrust uh, the animal evidence, but the current state of animal evidence and, and the ability of, of researchers within the field to, to do such a, 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 a con convincing job of selectively reporting their research in ways that's made it very, very hard to understand exactly what the true state of, of the evidence is. Um, I think that's really all I wanted to say. So I'm going to pass on to Deborah, who's going to give us a, an account of, of how she went about the investigation and some of the challenges she faced in the process. Deborah. I think it's fair to say it's been a painstaking investigation um, requiring dozens of freedom of information requests. Um, and this is, there's a sense that this is information that should be easily accessible. So um, information about protocols of, of animal studies, decisions made by ethics committees when to progress a trial into humans and, and on what basis trials progress. Um, there's also interest around um, investigations universities take into allegations of potentially scientific misconduct by members of their own organisation. Um, and suffice to say, it's been a very, very difficult investigation to do. There was lots of information that even now we haven't been able to get um, information on. So, for example, a protocol for the macaque study carried out at Porton Down, that's never been forthcoming, which raises questions about whether there was a protocol in the first place. And we simply don't know the answer to that. Um, there were not all documents were handed over by Oxford, um, Oxford University, so the investigators' brochures that we requested. Now, in their defence, they say it was an oversight, but there was a critical document that, that wasn't handed over. That was a May 2008 document that was the basis, that was sent to the South African regulators to get um, consent to move into to clinical trials. Um, and we were given that by a source instead. Um, there were the allegations and the investigations, the internal investigations at a public institution, that's Oxford University. Again, we didn't get those through freedom of information. Um, and one of the arguments was is they weren't considered to be in the public interest where you might think that perhaps in this situation they were. So it was a long, it was, it, the, the investigation itself must have taken about a year and a half. Um, lots of backwards and forwards. Um, allegations were given to, sent out to all sorts of parties and, and I think we must have spent, and there, was, there was a sense, there was a fear actually for, for scientists to speak out as well, there, there's definitely a climate of, it, sent, it seemed to be a climate of fear to, to speak out um, about concerns and you know we should be able to have discourse, scientific discourse in a kind of transparent public way and so I spoke to dozens of people off the record as well so I think, you know, there are there are lessons to be learned from this, just even the sense of what should be a fairly straightforward exercise, um, tracking down information about major clinical trials is, was actually quite a, a difficult process. And I won't dwell too much on kind of the implications about the science because there's 
people on the phone call that are far more qualified than me to do that, but happy to kind of answer any questions about the nuts and bolts of the investigation. Thanks very much, Deb. Paul. Uh, so this is Paul Garner. I'm a professor in Liverpool. Um, <clears throat> we know TB, the, the disease burden from TB in, in the world is very high and massively high in middle and low income countries, uh, particularly in Africa. We know that drug uh, resistance is making it increasingly difficult uh, to treat. And we know that the existing BCG vaccine uh, really is only partially effective. So any uh, new TB vaccine um, is obviously going to have tremendous implications for the health of the public worldwide. Uh, we work in this area um, and we in trials in humans in, in doing reviews um, and uh, we were looking at, at the human trial uh, and so a, a, a researcher uh, came to us and said, did we realize that um, uh, the large monkey trial uh, that had been carried out in this vaccine, the monkeys were developing the disease um, much more rapidly in the, in the group that uh, received the new TB vaccine compared to the control. And this was a bit of a shock to us. Um, we, uh, couldn't, we, didn't, we couldn't find this in the literature. Uh, we heard from this, uh, this person that there had been a lockdown on this story in the laboratory while um, an uh, application for funding a trial in humans had gone ahead. So um, uh, we, this was uh, of interest to us, and so we then um, decided to look at all of the available evidence in, um, in relation to animals and carried out um, a careful, critical review of, of all the evidence. And, and found two things. Uh, firstly, um, uh, that the evidence um, of benefit from the animal studies appeared to have been uh, overstated, and, and when we critically appraised the, the animal studies that had been published, there, there really was very little substantive evidence. And, and the largest mortality trial carried out in monkeys that had more deaths in the, this new vaccine group was published after the trial in South Africa had started recruiting children. So we um, simply published that and put that in, in the public uh, domain. Thanks, Paul. Um, Paul, Paul, since you've got the stage, do you want to just talk a little bit about the other bit that comes across in Deb's investigation, which is about how, what happened to you after the, the systematic review was published? Well, the, the systematic review was um, not um, straightforward to get published. People said that we were um, biased against the vaccine. Um, there were letters that were sent um, to my uh, director, and, and it, it, was, it was not an easy uh, part of my um, uh, career, shall we say, um, partly because there was a lot of um, uh, um, uh, uh, indirect um, criticism, and there was a very substantive uh, direct criticism of me and of the review. Um, uh, in fact, this was a, a really high-level team. The review done, was done incredibly carefully, and in my view, um, it proves the value of an independent systematic review appraising evidence um, uh, across the field in, in, in a structured way to give this independent appraisal of, of the evidence. And, and you know, so, some of the studies, it wasn't clear whether 
conflicts of interest were not clearly described. I, I was actually quite surprised about um, the quality of some of the reporting in the animal studies. I understand that this is fairly normal in the field, but for, for pe people that work in reviews of, of, of human studies, that the, the reporting was far less uh, than is desirable. Great, thanks, Paul. Um, Malcolm McLeod, over to you. Uh, thank you, Phil. So my name is Malcolm McLeod. I'm a professor in neurology and translational neurosciences at the University of Edinburgh. For the last 10 years or so, I've been interested in how we take information from the laboratory and use it to inform improvements in, in human health. And it's apparent that the process of drug development is, in general, becoming more difficult to develop new drugs, and that's probably because most of the easy drugs we've already identified, propanolol, the drug that we use for blood pressure, went from first being synthesized to being prescribed in three years, a length of time that would be impossible just now. Uh, what's become uh, apparent, really, is that uh, oftentimes uh, compounds and drugs which work in our animal models of diseases, particularly neurological diseases, but also diseases like tuberculosis, when we go and test those same drugs in clinical trial, we find that in, in human populations, the drug don't do anything. Um, and there's a, a, a number of, a, a variety of reasons for that. Often, it can be that, in fact, the drug wasn't as promising in animals as the headline figure suggested. And that's led to pharmaceutical uh, companies as recently as this week giving up on research in certain fields. So Pfizer this week announced that they were giving up the neuroscience, uh, neuroscience programme because they thought the prospects of success were simply not good enough. So what we take from that is that we need a, a better, a deeper, a richer understanding of what the animal data in support of a drug effect actually say and what they don't say before we make the decision uh, to go into clinical trial. And as Paul has said, the best way of doing that is through a systematic evaluation of all of the available evidence. And now, of course, that takes time and it might delay the process, but to give you some idea, a clinical trial will cost roughly 40 million euro to run. And a systematic review that might tell you you don't need to do a clinical trial would cost less than one hundredth of, of that amount of money. So deepening our understanding of what the animal data actually say before embarking on a clinical trial seems to me to be something increasingly important and something that, had it been done in this context, uh, might have saved the cost, the time, the effort, the ethics of a clinical trial, which ended up showing no effect. Thank you very much, Malcolm. So I'm moving on now to um, Meryl Ritzkis-Hoytinger uh, in the Netherlands. Meryl. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, I'm Meryl, and I have a professorship in evidence-based laboratory animal science at the Radboud University Medical Center. And as a laboratory animal scientist, we see uh, that we're facing a worldwide problem with the quality of animal studies and also with the translation of animal studies to humans. And I think it's very good that uh, the BMJ is now addressing this problem and taking responsible action to improve the situation. And as Malcolm just said, uh, I think systematic reviews are very valuable to be a methodology to generate the improvements that are needed, both in the interests of laboratory animals as well as human patients. And I would hope that our ethics committees will start demanding systematic reviews to summarize the preclinical evidence before human patients are 
exposed to new treatments. And in our editorial, we call for a cultural change in which researchers will be rewarded for producing valid and reproducible results that are relevant to patients and at the same time doing justice to the laboratory animals being used. Thank you very much, Meryl. And finally, from our panel, we have Jonathan Kimmelman in Montreal. Jonathan. Hi, everyone. Uh, but yeah, I have more snow here than anyone else on the call. Um, <laughs> I'm a medical ethicist at McGill, and I specialize in the ethics of human experimentation, in particular uh, early phase clinical trials. So I think there are a couple really interesting moral dimensions to this story. The first is that anytime you expose patients to an unproven treatment in the context of clinical trials, you are required to demonstrate that there is a favorable risk-benefit balance. And uh, in the context of early phase trials, that judgment hinges on the clinical promise of a uh, new treatment candidate or a vaccine. And that judgment itself is going to derive from a critical evaluation of the animal evidence. And so what this story shows is what many of us have known for a while, which is that sometimes the animal evidence used to support development of a drug candidate is not as strong as it could be uh, uh, in, in justifying a clinical trial. And in some ways, it's not an entirely surprising story because uh, although there are regulatory systems that are set up to protect patients, uh, in terms of uh, ethics review, also uh, in terms of drug regulation, uh, it's not entirely clear that drug regulators or ethics committees really carefully vet the animal evidence used to support uh, uh, a clinical trial uh, in the early phases. They certainly look very carefully at the safety information, but they often don't look at the efficacy information. And that's a concern for many of us because it's very well known that there are lots of problems and flaws with the ways that people collect and report animal evidence to support clinical development. So that's the first sort of really interesting and you know, uh, you know, uh, moral dimension to this story. The second really big issue is the issue about transparency. Uh, those of us who try to study early drug development and learn more about why drugs fail find it incredibly difficult to get access to the information used to justify uh, these clinical trials. And certainly, uh, this story uh, exemplifies some of the challenges in trying to get access to the animal evidence. Uh, uh, ethics committees, regulators, and drug sponsors often very carefully protect the information that they use to justify the clinical trial. And that really thwarts any effort to gather systematic evidence about why so many drugs that are put into uh, clinical trials ultimately fail. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, Emma, we're ready for questions. Over. Okay, great. I'll um, I'll go through um, each caller, um, and you have the opportunity to ask the panel any questions. So, um, Matthew Lim, I think you were first on. Do you have any questions? Oh, hi there. Yeah. Um, so, so what are the sort of the immediate steps you are recommending um, to um, improve this situation? Can I pass that to Meryl? Yes, thank you. Um, well, I think the, the, uh, there are a lot of stakeholders involved in this process. 
but I would hope that ethics committees um, and for human studies, medical ethics committees would start uh, demanding systematic reviews of animal studies in order to get a critical evaluation of the preclinical evidence and make it transparent. And I think that will immediately help to make things transparent and uh, lead to improvements. Can, can I just? Can I just? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I just want to add oh, sorry, one thing you go, to Jonathan, that. Yeah. So, sorry to sorry to interject. No, that's no, um, good. It, it's it's it's. I mean, it, it would be wonderful if uh, IRBs uh, and other ethics committees had access to systematic review evidence. Um, I would just further add to this that they ought to use that evidence to make their judgments about risk and benefit balance. From my conversations with most people that sit on ethics committees, they really don't carefully look at the animal evidence used to justify a clinical trial partly because it's really technical. It's very difficult to understand that information. And I think partly because they believe incorrectly that drug regulators like the FDA are carefully vetting that animal evidence. But, you know, my research at least seems to indicate that regulators are really not overly concerned with the efficacy evidence used to support clinical trials. They focus a lot on the safety information, but not so much on the evidence from animals that suggest the candidate is clinically promising. Thanks, Jonathan. Actually, Meryl, before I pass on to Malcolm, can you just make the point about uh, prospective registration? Yes, in line with uh, the clinic, there is now an initiative which is called preclinicaltrials.eu, where it is possible to uh, make a prospective registration of animal studies. And uh, as I understand it from clinical trials, uh, you cannot publish clinical trials if they have not been registered beforehand, at least with a lot of journals. And so hopefully this will be a movement that will uh, lead to prospective registration and also improvements in quality. Thanks, Mel. Malcolm, your thoughts? So, so uh, for those of you on the, on the call who are journalists, you, you might uh, ignore that sometimes your newspapers carry stories that aren't true in retrospect. But it turns out that the scientific literature also contains stories or, or facts which turn out in the course of time not to be true, not deliberately, but uh, but for a variety of reasons. And so any time that you're planning new research, and this question of moving into a clinical trial is one particular example of this, but even if I was planning new research in the laboratory, it would be important to have as clear and as unbiased and as a complete a view of the existing research before proceeding so that I could be confident on, of the ground on which I stood as I was embarking on investing my time and funders' money and patient risks in the next stage of the of the development, and um, and and so there's an organisation called the Evidence Based Research Network, for instance, which is promoting the idea of no new studies without a systematic review of what is already known. And so while there has been some um, discussion here about it being an obligation for the Human uh, Research Ethics Review Boards to take into account the animal data which are being used to argue the case for the trial being mounted. I think it's not a responsibility which rests just with um, just with the ethical review boards, but also with the funders of the research, with the researchers who are involved in planning uh, and mounting the research, uh, with the people who are going to end up publishing it, with the institutions under whose roofs the, the research is done. We all of us need to get better and assessing what's already known when we use that as a basis for future work. 
Thanks, Malcolm. Paul, did you want to add something? Uh, I would add that animal researchers should publish the findings from their research promptly, irrespective of the findings of that research. That's pretty clear. <laughs> how, 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 how could we achieve that? Just what would you put in line to make that happen? I, I mean, I, I think um, it's as mentioned in the, in the article, there's, there's this sort of cultural change that needs to be taken into account. So, you know, by chance, uh, it, these studies, some will show um, a result which the animal researchers want to see, and by chance, other studies will um, show, have findings that are contrary to their opinions. If they only publish the results that um, support their, their beliefs, then um, um, we have a um, completely biased picture um, of what the truth is. So this very important principle, um, uh, this very important fundamental scientific principle of defining your research in advance with protocols that are publicly available and publishing your findings of that research, irrespective of the findings, irrespective of the outcomes of that research, are very important. Part of the problem with this study was the was the delay in the publication of a trial for several years that um, uh, uh, um, had more deaths um, from or more monkeys euthanized in the new vaccine group than in the control group. And that was then taken out of all of the decision-making because of the delay in it being put in the public domain. And I'm just going to say briefly, um, the point about pre-registration, um, prospective registration is obviously key. And now in your editorial, you mentioned about the idea of withholding funding from people until they've fully reported that the results of previous work, which I think is the thing that's worked well in clinical research. Meryl, do you want to say more on that? Um, I think um, it, it sh uh, what, what Paul just said is very true, that all results should be published. Um, um, and we need prospective registration in order to, to get all results out. The problem at the moment we're facing is that researchers are being evaluated by the number of publications in high-impact factor journals. And so, uh, in general, positive results are more easily published. And so we have a publication bias for positive results in, uh, in high-impact factor journals. And um, so it's very difficult at the moment to make researchers uh, change behavior if they are only being rewarded for the number of publications. And so uh, a new evaluation on uh, patient relevance, for example, should come into the picture and then the, the, the change can happen. And I'm going to add something here. It's uh, Deborah Cohen. So what was interesting when I was investigating this story was some of the concerns that, you know, if you question animal research, then it's going to stop people publishing um, their animal research going forward or if you kind of raise concerns or if you um, and so on and so forth and, 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 what, and as people flagged up to me was that these were the kind of conversations that um, were going on in clinical research, um, research involving humans, you know, 20, 30 years ago 
Um, and the fact that this conversation is being had shouldn't stop people from publishing research. It should, people should make sure that they do it in an appropriate way and their methodologies are sound and they register kind of protocols and they should do it in a way that is ethical and acceptable to the scientific community. Thanks, Deb. Um, is anyone want to, another, any last comments on Matthew's question? I'll move to um, Vicky, Vicky Allen. Daily Mail. I'm going to have to ask my question and then go. I'm afraid um, I'm slightly on deadline at the moment. Apologies. <laughs> but I just wanted to ask, and forgive me if I miss this, but is there any suggestion that, um, that researchers were actually looking to mislead over this? And also I'm wondering what kind of risks the children in the human study could have been exposed to. I can I can take that. Um, so, I mean, as you know, as a journalist, proving intent is very, very difficult. So willfully mislead is a, is a very difficult allegation to prove. And, and yeah, I don't have any internal documents that say let's deliberately mislead. And I think it has been pointed out is this is as well as a system failing. Now, that's not to exonerate the behaviour of the scientists. But I think it's been pointed out that the system allows this practice to go on, the lack of scrutiny by ethics committees, the lack of scrutiny by, by regulators. So the system's allowed bad practice, I think it's fair to say, um, and I don't think that's a leap of faith too far to, to go on. And, and I, I said at the beginning, Vicky, that this was a painstaking investigation. It took about a year and a half um, and I know you went on the call then, um, dozens of freedom of information requests. Oxford University weren't particularly forthcoming in, in some aspects of that. And we have to have trust and accountability in science. And it was not an easy investigation to do. Um, in terms of harm to children, there's no evidence of that. Um, the clinical trials have been, to be fair to Oxford, the clinical trials have been reported and, and published by and large, um, and there's no evidence of harm um, to any of the children that have that have been involved in the clinical trial. Great, thank, thank you. Thanks, Vicky, for your question. Can I just um, build on that, even though Vicky may need to leave? Malcolm, in your editorial, you make a point about the the risk of over enthusiasm by researchers, and, and the fact that we haven't got clear criteria for moving to animals to human research. Um, do you want to just expand on that? Yeah, so, just, so firstly on the harms, but it's, it's interesting. The, the drug had been tested in other humans without adverse effects. So, so I, I don't think there was a, 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 a substantial risk that the trial participants might come to harm, other than you know, their time and effort and always the risk of something going wrong that happens when you're involved with clinical trials, small though that risk might be. Uh, the, the question here is... is uh, that, for instance, if you've got one drug being tested in clinical trial in, in South African babies to prevent TB, it's unlikely that another uh, trial of a more promising candidate is going to be able to recruit just as much at the same time. So it's, there's an opportunity cost associated with doing research. Uh, and I, I, my, my own view is the process by which we make decisions and the way that we operationalize that decision making about when a compound, when a drug is ready for clinical trial, is simply not well thought through and not well evidenced. And as Jonathan Kimmelman said earlier in the call, um, the difficulty is that because so much of this information is not available to researchers like him, 
it's very difficult for us to begin to understand those factors that are associated with successful translation and those factors which are associated with failure. So in many uh, cases, what we're doing is taking something that looks perhaps a little bit promising, and we are, uh, as is human nature, exaggerating or making the most of the evidence that's available to try and persuade a funder to give us the millions of dollars that's required to do this study, uh, rather than having a cold, calm, uh, light of day reflection of what the data actually say and what more information may be required. Now, we are working as part of a number of consortia with other groups as well to try and lay down a framework for what sort of evidence and particularly what sort of breadth of evidence you would need to see before a clinical trial would be justifiable. That works at very early stages just now. For the time being, someone asked earlier, what should people do just now? Well, they should do a systematic review before they move to clinical trial, and they should be deeply suspicious of what they see and hear coming out of the laboratory. And unless they are utterly convinced that things are as promising as they look, they should not proceed. And Malcolm, you also make the point, which I think I'm... I'm have heard made in other contexts that one of the issues here is that the same people were developing the vaccine as leading the research in animals as getting the funding for the trial so there's an element of you know the lack of an independent view in this or lack of a variety of views would you well, say that well, was fair yeah well, well science watchers will have been aware over the last couple of years of, of something called the replication crisis i'm not sure i would use the word crisis but essentially this started off in psychology where they took 100 of the leading findings in psychology that everyone agreed was in with the bricks of their specialty, of their research domain, and they tested them independently in other laboratories uh, and found that half of the findings, uh, that, that hardly any of the findings uh, uh, held up. The number of positive studies went from, I think, 97 to 33, uh, and the effects that they observed fell by half. So this... this uh, finding something in one laboratory or finding something in one group or one group being able consistently to demonstrate something is not sufficient for us to know that that phenomena is sufficiently widespread in sufficient different circumstances to justify taking it to clinical trial. So the doing, for instance, of multicenter animal studies to show that a drug will have an effect across a range of conditions in animals in different laboratories in different settings is, in my mind, a pivotal component of the decision then to take it to a third setting, which is the human clinical trial. I'd like to add something as well. Sorry, Fee, it's it's uh, Deborah here again. Yeah, good. Um, in, and in terms of, I'd like to reiterate what Malcolm said about the opportunity cost in, is the amount of money that, you know, there's one pot of money for research and people are competing for it. And if you don't represent the entirety of the information or give it an overly favorable view, of the um, of your research findings to attract more money, that means other people miss out. And we know funders of this institution at Oxford, the Jenner Institute, receive money from Wellcome. They receive money from Gates. They receive money from DFID, um, the UK Department for International Development, um, and receive money from from the EU. So they've received a lot of money from different places. And so. And, and the other thing perhaps is of the concern that, that we've been told by several people corroborated from various sources is that actually this potentially has put um, the TB field back. So they've actually changed the criteria of how they fund um, TB research going forward back on the basis of, well, the animal studies failed to predict what was going to happen in the clinical trials. And we know that isn't true. So 
it's actually harmed science going forward and potentially had the harm of, of putting back TB research, which, we, we, which we've heard, and there's a real need for, for a booster for BCG because of the variable effectiveness of it in different parts of the world. Thank you. Sorry, Malcolm. Just let, uh, can I just bring Jonathan in? On, yes, on certainly. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a lot to add. I mean, I think that just the larger point I kind of want to want to kind of reiterate about, um, you know, we tend to think of trials as kind of involving sort of two parties. There's the research subjects that go into the trials, and there's the researchers, and that includes the sponsors. Uh, and so whatever harms might happen, you know, are happening to those two parties. But but actually, that's not really an accurate representation of what's at stake when you do research. Uh, oftentimes, when in research, uh, particularly in an area like a neglected disease area, you often, to use an American analogy, only get one at bat. Um, you only get one chance to run a clinical trial. And oftentimes, the results of that trial, uh, if they are discouraging or negative or even adverse, uh, can uh, discourage others from pursuing similar lines of inquiry. So it's important to think about you know, the impact and effects of unsuccessful trials as not merely accruing to the people who participate in the trial, but also to other stakeholders who are involved in parallel investigations that might then somehow, somehow be uh, harmed or uh, uh, adversely affected by the outcomes of that one trial. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, Malcolm, you were going to say. It was, it was this point about you know how we could change the ecosystem, the infrastructure, the way that scientists were rewarded. We are in the early stages now of something called the Research Excellence Framework 2021, which is going to assess the quality of UK research and report back to government on, on how good it is. Um, and classically and conventionally, such assessment exercises have majored on how much you've published and where you've published it and are people citing it and people using it. If we go to the, this TB literature that Paul identified in his systematic review, a very, very small proportion of these studies report things like randomization and blinding and power calculations that we know can boost the integrity, boost the value of that research. But none of our research assessment exercises in the UK previously have ever looked at the quality of work in terms of the way the experiments are put together, the way they're designed, whether they're randomised, blinding and the like. And so there is an opportunity for us now going forward as we move into the period of the next research assessment exercise, research excellence framework, for these panels to consider the quality of work and how reliable the work is, not just where it happened to get published. There's an old Russian joke that says it's and that means there's no news in France and no truth in Australia. And a lot of our scientific literature is very much like that. The BMG, of course, notwithstanding. <laughs> Thanks, Malcolm. And Daniel, are you still with us? Do you need to ask anything? I am, yes. Thank you. Um, I missed the start of this, so apologies if you, you covered this already. Um, in terms of this idea that we should be conducting systematic reviews of some kind before progressing to, to human trials, is, are you saying that it would be, to some extent, unethical to progress to human trials without doing that? Can, or is that taking things too far? And do you have, is there any idea out there of what percentage of trials that do progress to, to human work actually do that already? I mean, have you ever come across people doing that? So maybe I could take this uh, to, to start off with. So, so 
in answer to your second question, uh, I know of four clinical trials which have been informed by a systematic review of the animal data for uh, drug selection uh, and for the way the drug w was given. Uh, and of those trials, I've been involved with three of them, so it's not, so it's not particularly common. Um, I think in terms of the ethics, I think that's to see ethics in a rather uh, binary way. I think it's much more ethical to do a trial which is based on a systematic review of the emerging literature. But of course, that also depends on the hazard and the clinical challenge. So if we have another Ebola outbreak and someone's got a drug which looks promising in animal studies that they could take to clinical trial, personally, I wouldn't wait for the systematic review before going to the clinical trial. If, however, I'm migraine where the whole rationale for taking it to clinical trial was because it seemed to work in some animal models that might be relevant. I think it would be much less ethical to proceed to that trial without systematically evaluating that evidence. But to see it as a hard yes, no ethical issue is I think to simplify things. Uh, Jonathan knows more about this than I do though. Well, actually, uh, Malcolm, you're going to put me out of business. Uh, that's that's a, that's a great answer. Uh, I just have a couple of things I want to add really quick, really quickly to this. Um, so, you know, generally, I'm not aware of any major ethics codes that say that if there's an ethical obligation to perform a systematic review before you, uh, you know, launch a clinical trial, whether it's a systematic review of preclinical or of even clinical evidence. But the ethics policies do say that you ought to systematically evaluate uh, the risk and benefit. And so, you know, in many contexts, that systematic evaluation is going to take the form of a systematic review. I think what is really distinctive here is uh, I want to make it really clear, even most clinical trials that are late phase don't perform systematic reviews of prior clinical trials to support them. So there's a very generalized problem with uh, uh, trial protocols not doing due diligence to systematize the prior evidence to establish that the question that is being asked in the clinical trial is a live question and that the question hasn't already been resolved. What's distinctive in this story is not so much that there isn't systematic review evidence. It's that there isn't systematic review evidence in the context of a realm where the evidence is known to be so highly variable in its quality. Clinical trials have lots of problems and lots of flaws, but at least we've fixed certain aspects of the way we do clinical trials. Randomization, for example, is fairly standard, uh, a standard technique used in clinical trials. That's not the case in animal evidence. And so I think what is distinctive here is, is, the, you know, the, is in light of the failures and problems with the way we do preclinical evidence, uh, it's critical that we systematize what evidence there is that's out there. Um, on, on that point, if I could just quickly, um, when these kind of stories come out, there's oft, they're often jumped on by the anti-animal research brigade as showing that, that there's some sort of inherent flaw with animal research and we shouldn't be doing any of it. Could anyone just respond to that? Well, just to begin with, Daniel, um, before I ask others to do, I, I, I really, we are at pains to make clear, and I hope, hope we succeed, but I, I doubt we will, um, to, to make clear that this is neither an anti-vaccine nor an anti-vivisection story. Um, and that it's very much a, a, a one example, which indicates that the, the sort of poor quality and lack of transparency and lack of accountability of animal research in its current form. And not to say that, that better animal research, better reported, um, wouldn't lead us in a much better place. So I agree with you, that is going to be a risk with this story. And that's certainly one of the things already those who didn't want this story told have made us, um, you know, have sort of tried to alert us to as if that would stop us publishing. 
um, you know, putting that fear in our minds. So I think I think we we absolutely recognise that's a likely problem. But perhaps um, as the laboratory animal researcher, Meryl, you, you'd like to respond to that. Yeah, I would like to respond to uh, whether or not we should do systematic reviews before clinical trials. I think whenever we can, we should do so. Uh, but if you wouldn't have the time or there are e emergencies like Ebola, then we still could do a, a comprehensive search of what evidence is available somewhere. So we have looked at the literature completely. And uh, I think that also gives a, a good overview of what is available. And so you don't take the time to, to read all of that uh, intensively, so at a, as you do in a systematic review. But you know what's out there. And so that would be a big uh, improvement step already, I think. And I, I also hope we can make a comparison, although what, what Jonathan Kimmelman said is that uh, clinical trials have, in general, a, a better a standardization and better quality, like randomization and blinding. But uh, to look at what the Cochrane is trying to do in cases of that they need an urgent decision with rapid reviews, and so there are uh, steps to be taken that you can come to, to a quicker decision. And, of course, a rapid review needs then to be validated later with a systematic review. But I think if we could do, start doing that for animal studies in future as well, that will be a major step forward. Thank you. I, I, Malcolm, what about the, no. Malcolm, what about the um, animal anti-resectionist concern? What would you say sure. to that? So first of all, I've got a conflict in that I sit on the UK Home Office Animals and Science Committee, which provides some uh, advice to ministers about the conduct of animal experiments in the UK, so you might not be surprised to hear that I think if done properly and correctly, they can be valuable. But I can give you an example of this. My, my own area of research... Uh, uh, relates to stroke when our blood vessel supply in the brain is blocked. And some treatments are, are directed at removing that blood clot and allowing uh, the brain to recover. This is thrombolysis treatment for stroke where people are supposed not to sit outside at 80 hours for four hours in ambulance while they're waiting for it. Um, and we know that the longer the delay until the blood clot is removed, the less good the outcome. If we look at the, at the time course of that delay in efficacy in mice, in rats, in primates, and in humans, it is entirely predictive right the way across those species. So used and harnessed and interpreted correctly, animal studies can be highly helpful. And I can think of very few diseases or conditions that I'm involved in treating as a, as a practicing neurologist where I would be prepared to embark on a clinical trial unless or recruit my patients into a clinical trial unless there is good convincing evidence from an appropriate animal model. So, so this isn't a case of saying all the animal data are rubbish, we should do without them, we should chuck them out. What we mm -hmm. desperately need are good quality, reliable animal data uh, in, in sufficient size. One of the points I make in my editorial here is the number of animals in the uh, development program for this drug to show efficacy was substantially smaller than the number of human subjects they thought they needed in their clinical trial to show efficacy. <laughs> there's, no, there's no good reason why that should be the case other than trying to, to do the animal studies as quickly and as efficiently as possible, which is a good thing, but sometimes that can lead to the animal studies being underpowered. So I don't think we need fewer animal experiments. I think we need the right kind of animal experiment done properly and analysed appropriately prior to embarking on clinical trials.
and 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 Dan, it's it's, it's Deborah it's Deborah here. So one concern that, that that I've had throughout this, and and I've spoken to, um, like I say, dozens of people. You, I know you missed the beginning of the conversation off the record, and on the record, and a lot of people were too frightened to speak on the record. So spoke to them in off the record capacity, and you have to ask the question when we're discussing principles of science. Is that an acceptable position to be in? But but one thing that did come out repeatedly was the idea of questioning animal science. You're a, an anti-vivisectionist, and and I, I don't think that's fair. And as you as you know, uh, as a journalist, your job and here's me kind of defending my position as a journalist is to ask questions and to hold to account, particularly when animals involved, people are involved, huge sums of money are involved that that are going to impact people. So. I don't think that allegation is fair because I don't think any point we are questioning the use of animals, it's it's how they're used in what capacity and the and the rigour and the transparency around the research. Yeah, I agree you, on that point. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Mary, yeah. Yes, I think we need to have more open discussions on animal studies, the usefulness and how we do them. And I have the same experience that when you start to ask questions in science, then some people immediately say, oh, you're against animal studies. And I think that's not how science ought to work. We should have to have, uh, we should have open critical discussions because it's science and it's developing and it's uh, trying to find new ways. So I couldn't agree more. Paul, do you want to add something here? Uh, nothing further to add. Thank you so much, everyone. I think this has been a very rich conversation, and I'm 